praise be as we sang moments ago to the one who helps the stranger in distress, the widowed and the fatherless, and grants the prisoner sweet release. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Last week, we began a five-week series on uh, the splendid epistle from James, the brother of Jesus. And I've taken as the keynote uh, for looking at this letter as a whole, the phrase from uh, James 1.18, where James talks about us as being the first fruits of 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 his creatures, and um, I, that's an agricultural image, but I, I used a different image. I, I, I talked about beehive geyser in Yellowstone National Park, which is, which is one of the most spectacular geysers there, but you never know when it's going to go off, except at the base of beehive, there is a little geyserette, uh, a spitter geyser. Um, that, they, that goes off about 20 minutes before the big blow. And you can always tell that the geyser is going to go because the geyser, the geyserette goes off, the indicator. And um, Paul treats Jesus' resurrection as being the indicator of and guarantee, therefore, of the fact that the general resurrection is going to happen eventually no matter how long it takes. James has a different but complementary angle of vision, he sees the new life that's begun in us as being the first fruits, the, the indicator geyser, the promise that new creation is right around the corner and it's actually begun among us. Well, today we turn to chapter 2 of James. And in this chapter, James makes observations about a couple of things that bother him about what's going on in the, um, in the Jewish Christian communities that he's writing to. Well, and they are, one, um, favoritism, and the other is phony faith. But first, I want to play a little background music, and thank you for playing the background music as we as we go. Uh, first, a little background music. Uh, and bear with me, this second chapter of James needs a little bit of context. James, younger brother of Jesus, had, as you can imagine, a pretty unique upbringing. Imagine if Jesus Christ were your older brother. Now, of course, it's way too easy to speculate what growing up in that home would have felt like. But there had to be moments like I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, that I can't keep my room as neat as Jesus. I'm not perfect after all. From the gospel accounts, it appears that James, in fact, followed along, listened to his big brother's teachings, and observed his ministry. At one point, he and other family members conclude that Jesus had lost his mind and they try an intervention, Mark 3, verse 21. At another point, despite not believing in him, James and his other brothers encourage Jesus to announce his messianic intentions in Jerusalem, John 7. 
Clearly, it was all so very confusing. Imagine how stunned James must have been when his brother Jesus not only rose from the dead that first Easter morning, but went on to make a special appearance to him. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. And then, oh my goodness, to find himself as overseer of the 8,000-member church in Jerusalem, where so many ancient hopes and ideals are being realized because Jesus is risen. The God of Exodus deliverance is doing signs and wonders again. In their gratitude, a rescued people are living together, holding all things in common, selling their possessions and goods to take care of each other's needs, joyfully worshiping together in the temple and hosting one another in their homes, partaking of food with glad and generous hearts, conflating lines from the end of chapter 2 of Acts and the end of chapter 4 in Acts. Here's where was born James's idea of us, those who hold to the faith that Jesus Christ, his brother, the Lord of glory taught, of us being a kind of first fruits of God's creatures, of our life together, caring for one another, worshiping together, taking care of each other's needs, our life together being the indicator geyser of creation made new. Moreover, it is James who gives the decisive word at the Jerusalem council in A.D. 50. While others in Jerusalem balk, they even choke at the idea that in the apostle Paul's ministry to the nations, Paul would allow Gentiles into the church simply through baptism and faith in Christ and not through circumcision and submission to the ritual law of Moses. Listen carefully because people often see profound conflict between what James teaches in this epistle and what the Apostle Paul teaches in his letters, especially to the Galatians and to the Romans. Listen carefully. It is our James who gives definitive affirmation of Paul's gospel that is received, as Paul says, by faith apart from works of the law. James does so through reflection on Peter's story of how an angel appeared to him, confirming what Jesus had taught about all things being made, being clean now, and through his own deep reading of the apostle of the prophet Amos's promise that days would come in which David's fallen house would be rebuilt and rise from its ruins as a place in which Jew and Gentile together would call upon God's name, Acts 15, verses 15 through 18. Imagine now, having tasted and helped to oversee the wonder of all of that, imagine James's frustration at what he observes among his fellow Jewish believers after the initial excitement has worn off. He observes, again, two things, favoritism and phony faith. First, what he wants us to understand is that favoritism toward the rich is beneath the royal law. 
There was, friends, a different attitude towards the poor all along among Jews and then Christians, at least when they're not under the influence of the world. The famous American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr says that there are two kinds of cultures, those that expect a redeemer and those that don't. Cultures that expect a redeemer recognize that things are not the way they were intended to be, that they are marked by injustice and unfairness now, and that one day it will all be fixed. Those who expect no redeemer say, it is what it is, always has been, always will be, world without end, deal with it or kill yourself trying to change it. Jews and Christians recognize that right now, things are upside down and in need of redemption. As a result, they put a premium on the poor and the dispossessed. Thus, the language of Psalm 146, the one who saves the poor who saves the oppressed and feeds the poor or, again, helps the stranger in distress, the widowed and the fatherless, and grants the prisoner sweet release. In the words of Isaiah, who opens the eyes of the blind and stops the ears of the deaf and makes the lame to leap like a deer, which is what we see Jesus doing in today's gospel passage. So we put a premium on the poor and the dispossessed, because we recognize, because this is the Bible's story, that there are princes among the paupers, and that in the grand scheme of things, we are all paupers needing elevation and rescue. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Pagan Greece and Rome, within which the early church emerged, and of course, there are many ancient and modern variants, Eastern as well as Western. Pagan Greece and Rome saw things differently. If you're at the top of the food chain, it's probably because you deserve it. If you're at the bottom, it's probably because you deserve it, and it's probably just best not to mess with it. What you need is to cultivate allies above you and then to distance yourself from those beneath you. And James sees his fellow believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ acting just like that in their worship. What shocks him is finding his fellow Jewish believers in the glorious Redeemer Lord acting just like pagans. And James says of those that he observes, you say you believe God is one. Well, even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Now, Paul, in Romans 3, appeals to the same idea, God is one. And for Paul, God's oneness means Jews and Gentiles are destined to be saved by one means. What's lovely in James is that quite in sync with Paul, James says that the oneness of God means no, no favoritism. It means rich and poor belong in worship as equals. Now, 
I'm just trying to give you some overall perspective for you to work out the details. The fact is, it's easy to get caught up in unhelpful questions of do's and don'ts from today's passage. Like, are all rich people oppressors? Does every hand out obligate you to dig into your pocket? Thing is, we all have kinds of people that we want to impress and people we just as soon dismiss. Maybe it's money and power or lack of money and <laughs> lack of power. Maybe it's, maybe it's people who can help you or people who need your help. Maybe you worry about the difference between people who are cool and hip or people who are not cool and not hip. People who are woke or people who are still asleep. People who are educated or people who in your eyes are ignorant. Who do I tend to, uh, pardon, I can't think of another term, who am I tempted to suck up to and who are people that I just want to walk past? That's what James wants us to think about. James calls his readers and us back to the law of neighbor love. He calls it the royal law to verse 8. Helping them to remember, helping us to remember that in Matthew 25, his brother, Jesus, comes back as king to separate sheep from goats and says, to the extent that you did it to the least of these or to the extent that you didn't do it to the least of these. The question that James puts before us is do I look for the prince among the paupers? Am I looking to meet the king among his most humble of servants? If so, I'm living what it is to be part of the indicator geyser of God's new creation. Second thing that he notes is phony faith. And what he wants us to understand is really simple. The point is to be a friend of God. And faith minus works doesn't work. Some people that James is writing to treat faith as though it were mere fire insurance. Pray the prayer you're in, then go live just as you used to for yourself. And that's got James pretty upset. Now let me offer a sidebar. Paul, who is supposed to, in many people's minds, is supposed to be on the opposite side of this discussion from James, Paul would absolutely agree with what James is saying. Paul said, what counts is faith working through love, Galatians 5, 6. And by grace you have been saved through faith, even this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not because of works, lest anyone should boast, for, for, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It was nicely captured, I think, in the first place by John Calvin, but then uh, codified in the Westminster Standards and other places this way. 
We're saved by faith alone, and that's Paul's emphasis, but not by a faith that is alone, and that's James' emphasis. But each would say that the other is right in what they're trying to say for their particular context, in, in the needs of the people that they're writing to. Paul wants us to see that faith puts us in the position of living the artistry, being God's workmanship for which we were created in the first place. That's his way of saying exactly what James is saying about us, not just Christ himself being first fruits of God's creation. James's way of putting it is our initial faith doesn't sit there all by itself, but it opens to us the possibility of growing into a genuine friendship with God. And friends, friendship is way more valuable than fire insurance. Oh, get the fire insurance, because one day it is all going to burn. Stand here at as many funeral services as we have here, and you know how important fire insurance is. But you get your fire insurance, hopefully, so your home can be a place of fellowship, nurture, affection, refuge, hospitality. Jesus doesn't want to just be your ticket out of this life. He wants to be your friend in this life. Don't just insure the house live in the house. And that's why James talks about Abraham's early faith, the one that's mentioned as the faith that justifies him in Genesis 15, when God promises him an heir. That's why James looks 14 or so years later to Genesis 22, when the heir has actually come and Abraham is asked to give him up. And it's at this point that James says, James's willingness to obey completes that early faith. And that, friends, is how we are first fruits. Indicators of the age to come. Refusing the pagan temptation of favoritism. Embracing the friendship of God through attention. through attention to our neighbor's need. I'll let my friend Joel Hunter have the last word today. Joel asked often, why didn't God kill you and take you to heaven as soon as he saved you? Maybe it's because he wants to bring a little bit of heaven into this world through you. Your life and my life together have the promise, have the privilege of being the indicators of God's whole new creation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.